0: Scripture today is from Luke 19:11 through 27, and 21, 1 through 4. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minors, and he said to them, engage in business until I come, but the citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him, saying, "'We do not want this man to reign over us.' When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, "'Lord, your miner has made ten miners more.' And he said to him, "'Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities.' And the second came, saying, "'Lord, your miner has made five miners.' And he said to those who stood by, Take the miner from him and give it to the one that has ten miners. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten miners. I tell you that, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you, Vicky. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer. It's good to see so many of you this morning. Dads, we're we're proud of you. If if your dad and your wife was on the retreat and you were able to get your kids here, I imagine a lot more of them will be at the next service, uh, given how hard it can be to get going in the morning, especially with mom out of town. So uh, good job, dads. Um, We continue this morning in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and what we've been doing this fall is looking every month at a different theme. So this month's theme has been all of these passages in Luke's Gospel, Where Luke talks about money, he has a lot to say about money. And so we've spent the entire month uh, looking at this theme. Now, so I guess what that means is is you can tell your friends they can come back to church next week because we'll be done with this topic. Okay, so everybody's okay. November's going to be something different. Uh, So let everybody know that, all right? So they'll come back. Uh, No, in in all honesty, uh, there's a lot that we have to learn from Luke here. Uh, And and really what he's teaching us is, is what you believe about the gospel affects what you do with your money. And so if you really want to know what, what you, you know what you really believe about Jesus, look at how you spend your money. That's part of what Luke's telling us here. in this parable, the parable of the ten, we debated this, Vicki, did Vicki leave? We debated in our, in our preaching meeting, that, is it mina, is it mina? And I think we settled on, I'm going to do, use mina, because it's just what I geared up to do. So mina, mina, however you want to translate that, we're not really even sure. But this parable of the ten minas is a parable about money. Okay, In Matthew, there's a similar parable that seems to have a broader application to Matthew chapter 25, but here in Luke, it's clear that the emphasis is on money and material possessions. Uh, this is not only clear because it is a theme that is particular to Luke's gospel from beginning to end, but we see there in verse 11 that the parable, the parable section begins with these words. Do you see there, verse 11, he as they heard these things? excuse me, he proceeded to tell them a parable. Now, what things were they hearing about that led to this teaching? And I don't know if you have a Bible in front of you. If you do, you probably noticed. If you don't, you might not realize that just before this section is the story about Zacchaeus the tax collector. Zacchaeus, who was a thief and an extortioner. And then he met Jesus, and as a result of his experience in meeting Jesus He had this radical reorientation of his entire life, including his money. He was a very wealthy man. Jesus invites himself to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. It's such a powerful experience for Zacchaeus that at the end of the night, he makes this huge pronouncement verse 8 of chapter 19. He says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Okay, So he emptied out 50% of of his savings account. Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone... Of anything, I will restore it fourfold. So it's clear, see from the text, that Jesus sees this as evidence that he, that Zacchaeus has been converted. He says in verse ten, "Today, I tell you, salvation's come to this house." Zacchaeus, you're a new person. He says, he sees this as a very appropriate, very normal reaction in Zacchaeus, and I think that should unsettle us a little bit because if it is anything but normal for us, I mean, pastors, listen, I. I, I imagine pastors would love people who become Christians and decide to give fifty percent of their wealth to the church, right? Don't you imagine? And I, it's not—I can tell you—it doesn't happen very often. In fact, I don't know that it ever has in my experience. And so, but Jesus doesn't seem to blush at it at all. He seems to think this is just normal, you know, every day. And it seems anything but normal to us. It's extraordinary, you know. We might say it's hyperbole, right? Or is it? I'm not sure. And then right after that story comes this parable. And so I want you to see here then from chapter 19, this is a parable about money and what we're to do with our money. Okay, it's a parable about money and why we don't do uh, what we know we ought to do with our money. And lastly, it's a parable about money and why we should do what we, I think, know we ought to do with our money, but just don't find that we have the power to do it. Okay, so those are our three points of the outline uh, that I've given to you there. Okay, so let's just start. What does this parable teach us about how we should approach money and material possessions? That's the first thing. And look there at the story with me. There's a nobleman, Jesus tells us of, that gives his servants a certain amount of money, a mina or mina. Three months wages, basically. All the commentators and and scholars are, are kind of unanimous about that. So it's about three months wages. And he tells them, verse 13, engage in business with this investment that I make in you until I come. And when he returns, we're told that he gathered these servants together in order to learn from them. And here's the verse the phrase that I want you to pick up on in verse sixteen. He 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 wants to learn what they had gained by doing business while he was gone. And that's interesting, you know, language, isn't it? I mean it's interesting word choice, it's interesting terminology here that 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 Jesus has picked up on all this language from the, the market and from the business world. Because in business you have a product, you have a market, you have capital. And you're hoping for profit. I mean, in all of these, these words that Jesus uses to describe the way the kingdom works are these words from the business world. And so there's a way in which there's a parallel between the way the business world works, which most of us are familiar with, and the way the kingdom works, which we're less familiar with. And so let's just kind of, but they get, see, these things get redefined a little bit, of course, because we're talking about the kingdom of heaven here. So let's ask, what is the business then? That word business there, verse 16 What have they gained by doing business? Engage in business until they come, he says. Well, what's the business? And my definition would be something like this. That we are to use our money and material possessions to spread the knowledge and the influence of the kingdom of heaven on the earth until he comes. Let me say it again. That we are to use whatever money and material possessions that he has given to us to spread the knowledge and the influence of the kingdom of heaven on the earth until he comes. That's our business. Let's talk about that just a little bit. First, to, to, to use our money and material possessions to spread the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven throughout our city and our world. And we do this, I mean, this you know, just some, some practical things. We do this by funding church planting, by funding missions projects that preach the gospel, by raising up young men and women uh, to, to learn the gospel, to be trained theologically so that we can send them out to preach and teach and then we can support them financially. All of the ways that we would be committed to the task of seeing the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven spread to all the corners of the earth through uh, gospel ministry and the preaching of the gospel, not only by preachers and teachers, but by lay people and lay missionaries that God sends all over the world. But also, we use our money and material possessions to spread the influence of the kingdom of heaven throughout our city and the world. And we do this by using our money, using our stuff, to promote the spiritual, physical, economic, and social flourishing of our community and communities all over the world. We, we take whatever capital and resources that we have to build and sustain concrete, physical, tangible expressions of the shalom of God's kingdom that radically impact lives, not only here in Winter Haven, but all the places that God would send people that we know. This is our business. So we're to engage, we're to use the money, material, possessions that we have to engage in Doing business until he comes again to spread the knowledge and influence of the kingdom of heaven here on the earth until he comes again. But what's the gain? What's the profit? See, he says we're to do this in order for we're to be aiming at a gain. What gain? What had they gained by doing business? He says, and I think the gain is, of course, uh, we could say what the teaching of the Bible would be is that the gain is souls which are of a single soul, we're told, is of greater value than any earthly treasure because while even the brightest and the most beautiful of earthly treasures will eventually fade, the soul is the thing that lasts forever. The gain is not only souls, but it's also what I've said already, the concrete expression of the kingdom of heaven within earthly social and political structures that leads to the flourishing of the whole community. Like when um, I thought of some examples, like when the business community and the churches and the nonprofits get together in a city, in a room, like what happened in Winter Haven just a few uh, weeks ago through Heart for Winter Haven, and the business community and the nonprofits and the churches join hands with one another and they pray for the renewal of a city. Like it's happening in our city through the work of Brad Beatty. I mean, that's the game. I mean, I've lived here my whole life, and I sat in that room, and I just thought, I've never seen something like this. We're making progress. Something's happening. And I think this is, just in small snapshot, what the phrase gaining or gaining a profit by doing business really means for us. And this is what Jesus expects us to use our wealth and resources to do. For as long as he tarries in heaven, this is what he's left us to do while he is away receiving the kingdom. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. To see the gospel of the kingdom proclaimed and the righteousness of the kingdom prevail, not just with our enthusiasm, see, not just, man, I don't, yeah, I want to see that, but that there's practical putting our, our physical material resources into those projects, not just with our enthusiasm, with our money. And what we're told here is that he's coming back again. And when he comes back, like what happens to these servants here, he will bring us to judgment. Not just unbelievers, but believers too, that we... Will Hall have to sit with him one day for a performance review? And the shape of our life, our eternal life, will be determined by the shape of our earthly life. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. That's the day of judgment, the day when he gathers his servants. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done, Paul says. If the work that anyone has built survives the fire of God's evaluation then he will receive a, re- a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Paul's writing to Christians. That's a, that's a letter to Christian people there in 1 Corinthians 3. And so we should be, I think you can say, from the from the beginning to the end of the Bible, and I know this is something, we don't have a lot of time to get into this, okay? We've talked about this before. You can come ask me questions if you, ha- if you have them later. But we should be, I think the Bible says, motivated by the idea of judgment. Not... Not the fear of judgment, but the promise of reward that he offers us in judgment. He says in verse 26, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away from him. In other words, if you spend your life and your money in the business of the kingdom, then whatever you have to show for it on the day of judgment, you will be given more. Here's ten minas, Lord. Here's ten cities. You've been faithful in small things. Here are the big things. But if you... You will be be rewarded, in other words, with eternal spiritual riches that will never spoil, perish, or fade. However, if you live only for yourself and you come before God with very little to show for all of the time and energy and money you've spent throughout your life, then that little will become less. And the less will go on for eternity. And so I think what Jesus is saying is, this is a good investment. That's the application. This is a really good investment. Now, when I began to prepare for the sermon at the beginning of the week, I really thought that this was going to be the bulk of what we would talk about, but I'm actually going to just stop right there and say, that's the teaching. I mean, that really is the teaching. It's right there. Uh, And and I'm going to stop there because I think for the most part, we really do, we really do know what Jesus is asking us to do here. Our problem is not that we don't know what we're supposed to do with our wealth. We know. Let's be honest. Can we just have a moment of brutal honesty with one another? The problem is, where do I find the courage? To do what I know I'm supposed to do and I want to spend the rest of the time talking about that okay because I do think this this uh, parable really uh, gets to the bottom of some of that as well and so what we've said then is in this first point use your wealth and resources to gain a profit by doing business in the kingdom of heaven that's the teaching that the parable gives about money it's very clear it's very hard For that reason, I'm thankful that Jesus also exposes our hearts to us so that we can also understand why. Why is this so hard? Why do we, I mean, and this is, you know, true of our culture more than probably most in the world, but why, why is this so difficult? And really, there's applications not just to money, but to all obedience. And so let's dig into this a little bit more. I want you to look at the way that Jesus uh, in his story characterizes the citizens of the country of this king, this nobleman that's gone away to receive a kingship. So come with With me to verse 12. He said to them, a nobleman went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and to return. And then if you skip down a little bit. But the citizens, his citizens hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And there it is. See, there's some antagonism there, isn't there? C.S. Lewis was credited with saying uh, the choice of every lost soul, can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. I really love that, uh, because those aren't his words. <laughs> uh, for once, Lewis is borrowing a phrase from someone else, and he doesn't give any credit for it, which is my favorite part. Uh, and it really, if you're, if you're aware, it's a line from John Milton's Paradise Lost, uh, which is a classic in English literature, and it really is. I've read, I have I, I read it in small chunks, because it's very hard and very dense, but really is marvelous, and the line, from, the line is from Milton's Paradise Lost, and here's Milton. Uh, and I think, Josh, we have this on the, on the screen, don't we? And be, I put it up here because it's, it's so, I'm going to read it to you, but you probably need to see it while I read it to you so you can get the full force of it. Milton's here describing the state of mind of Satan. Paradise Lost is a story from the heavenly perspective of the fall of man in Genesis uh, 3. And Milton here is describing the, mind, the state of mind of Satan after he's been thrown out of heaven. This is Satan talking here about what's happened to him. And, he, and he's, rallying, <clears throat> he's rallying the demonic forces around him in light of their recent um, defeat at the hands of the armies of heaven. So he says, Let us not then pursue by force impossible our state of splendid vassalage, but rather seek our own good from ourselves and from our own. Live life to ourselves, though in this vast recess, hell, free and to none accountable, preferring hard liberty before the easy yoke of servile pomp. He goes on, what though the field be lost, we've lost heaven, we've lost the battle, but all is not lost, the unconquerable will is not lost. In study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, One who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. And he goes on, he says, Here at last we shall be free. Here we may reign secure. And in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. And here's the line better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Now, I realize this is beginning to sound like a high school English class, and I'm sorry about that. But Paradise Lost is a classic for a reason. And in this case, it is this, it's this piercing language Milton uses to describe how committed we are, like Satan, to this state of mind. I mean, isn't that isn't it profound language? He says, rather, rather seek our own good from ourselves and from our own to live life to ourselves, this profound sense of autonomy and, and the stubbornness. He says, you know, we've lost heaven, but all is not lost. Our will remains unconquerable. You know, we, 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 we still possess the courage never to submit or to yield. This profound stubbornness that, that he displayed. And then, and then, of course, in the line, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. Right? We, will, we, we are committed to be served, not to serve, which, of course, is the very opposite of the son of man who came to serve and not be served. Now, I, <clears throat> I don't know that we have fully grasped the depth to which our culture has come to esteem. The sort of defiance that I heard many of you kind of gasp as we read from Milton that also characterizes the unconquerable soul, to borrow a line from him, and also from the poem of William Ernest Henley, Henley Invictus. There's a Matt Damon movie made with that title a few years ago, but in the poem, Henley says, In the fell clutch of circumstance I have not winced or cried aloud Under the bludgeonings of chance my head is bloodied but unbowed. He wrote the poem in a hospital bed after having his leg amputated due to tuberculosis, which was really just the latest in a string of really terrible things that had happened to him in his life, and he wrote it in defiance of faith, not as an expression of faith. And you can feel both, you know, you can feel particularly in, in Henley's poem uh, the barbs of cynicism and unbelief as you read it. And what's fascinating is, is, is that it really has become, in our culture, um, something that's really turned away from cynicism. It's, it, it's become a romanticizing of what Jesus and what C.S. Lewis and and Milton all say is a grave spiritual condition, a demonic state of mind. And can I just say, by the way, that if Jesus, C.S. Lewis, and anybody else agree about something, pay attention. Okay? I thought you'd chuckle at that. We have deified in our culture this unconquerable soul. It's Rudy, who... Gets knocked down, but gets back up no matter how many times he gets knocked down. And as charming as Rudy is, that stubbornness, that bloody head that remains unbowed, that is the essence of what Christians are referring to when we talk about sin. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is wanting to to rule and not be ruled. It's not a virtue. It's a spiritual disease. The indomitable spirit woven through the American cultural lore is not... Something to strive after, it's something to turn away from and repent of. It's the expression of our collective unbelief that has characterized our society basically from our very beginning. Six simper Tyrannus, right, is what John Wilkes Booth shouted after shooting Abraham Lincoln. Death to tyrants. We don't want a king. That's why these things are so hard. Let's be honest. We don't don't want a king. The problem is, is we need one. And I love the way the children's catechism puts it. We were doing this in my house the other night. It asks first, how is Christ the king? And then you answer the question, obviously. And then the next question is so great. It says, why do you need Christ as a king? And according to the catechism, see, Jesus as our king is a part of the good news of the gospel. And everyone listening to this story would have known what Jesus was talking about. There was a historical uh, situation that he was pointing to in his teaching here. The son of Herod the Great, Archelaus, had, had, been, um, had been put in, into authority in Judea by the Roman em- emperor. And, and at, at about 6 BC, he had gone to Rome uh, to receive the kingdom of his father. And once he had gone, there was, a, there was a delegation of the Jewish religious leaders who went after him to Rome to say, please, don't put this man in charge over us because he, he treats us horribly and it's going to cause revolt And and all these kinds of things. And so the historical precedent here is that there was a really, really bad king that the people of this day uh, would have known and and, and really that explained exactly what Jesus is teaching. But what Jesus is saying is is he's a king like that king except though he was a bad king, I'm a good king. And and what he's exposing to us is, is it doesn't matter whether it's an evil king or whether it's a good king, we don't want a king. But we need a king. We need a good king. And this is why we have such a hard time obeying the teaching of the parable and with obedience in general. We don't want this man to reign over us, they say. Nobody gets to tell me what to do. I, I will determine the conditions of my relationship with God, not the other way around, okay? See, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I mean, are you aware of this? Do you feel this? I mean, can I speak to that for just a minute? This is the problem that people have with Christianity. They may say, well, you know, I'm not sure I can really believe that stuff. Or, you know, I'm not really... I, it's really hard for me to kind of wrap my head around some of the things I read in the Bible. Listen, the evidence for Christianity is not really the problem. The way the Bible's been rep- misrepresented and politicized is not really the problem. The problem is this position of I'm going to decide. God doesn't get to decide good and evil, right or wrong for me, I get to decide it. That's the problem. And see, if you're a Christian, are you aware of this? Are you aware of how this lingers even after you come to faith in your life? See, the claims that Jesus makes about who he is means that you can't like him. You can't like him. You have to either kill him or crown him. That's it. Those are the two options. There's no other option. And see, that's the first thing the story teaches. that There's a natural hostility in us towards God as king. Conversion, then, is the process of, of, of this hostility beginning to be replaced by something else in your life. Now, what replaces it? What replaces this hostility? That's the big question. Because you see, for a lot of us, the hostility is replaced by fear. And this is pictured for us in the story by the wicked servant who played it safe with the king's investment. Look there in verses 20 and following. And was condemned. And the teaching of the parable is that if, if what replaces your hostility is fear, that, that, that's, not, that's not good enough. That doesn't work. The teaching is, is that we should be risky in doing business in the kingdom, but that we will not do so because we are afraid. So listen to his words here in verse 21. Lord, he says to them, to the master wants the king once he returns here's your mina which i kept laid away in a handkerchief for i was afraid of you because you are a severe man you take what you de- you take what you don't deposit and you reap what you did not sow so one of the reasons we fail in obeying the teaching of the parable is because like the citizens of this country we're rebellious and we're stubborn and another reason is because like this man here this un- this wicked servant we're afraid we don't trust god so there's pride in there's fear. It was Martin Luther who consistently pointed out that there is a difference between obedience motivated by pride and fear and obedience motivated by gener- gener- me, um, <clears throat> genuine gratitude towards God and love towards others. And the problem with obedience motivated by pride and fear, he says, is that it isn't free, it's, com- it's, it's compulsory. And when when there's compulsory obedience, then it always strives for the bare minimum. I've yet to ask my kids to go clean their room and have them skip off gleefully saying, Yes, Father, I delight to clean my room. I have yet to send them to clean their room. And upon inspection, find that they've done any bit more than the absolute bare minimum of what would qualify as room cleaning. And I'm quite sure my parents had the same experience with me. But you see, there's a difference between saying, I obey because I have to, and and I obey because I want to. The servant in our story should have been motivated to obey for his master's sake. But he was afraid, and his fear made him full of self-concern, and that's the problem with pride and fear. They're both selfish. This wicked servant, at the end of the day, is no different than the citizens who hate his master. He, too, has no regard for the king. He, too, is only thinking about himself. Think about it for a minute. His fear is no different than their pride. And this is a really, really big deal. Because there are many of us in this room who have had a kind of religious experience, but the aftertaste of that experience is a sense of fear or dread that continues on for many people through the rest of their lives. And what Jesus is teaching here is that if your hostility towards God, if your hostility towards God is replaced by fear of God, and by that I mean a crippling fear that causes you to play it safe in life, that's not a genuine Christian experience. That describes the process of becoming religious. It does not describe the process of becoming a Christian because you can't be obedient and full of fear at the same time. That's why over and over again the Bible says don't be afraid because we have to do something about our fear before we can get on to the obedience part. If you're afraid, you'll do the bare minimum, and that's not enough. But the kind of obedience that Jesus wants from us, whether it is with money or in church planting or Whatever the case might be, it's so radical and so risky that you have to be motivated by something other than fear. Because fear can take you so far, but not nearly far enough. I mean, if you want an example, look at this story down in, in, at the very end that I printed for you out of chapter 21, verse 4. This, this widow, this poor lady who, we're told there in verse 4, gave all she had to live on. Everything. That's everything. Not a small percentage. I mean, reading that, I was reminded of, of the passage in 2 Corinthians 8 where Paul describes the generosity of the Macedonian Christians... Towards those in Jerusalem, where he says their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part, for they gave according to their means. We're pretty comfortable with that. Here's where we get uncomfortable. He goes on to say, they gave beyond their means and of their own accord. And so those are the words that describe the kind of generosity the parable is calling us to. A generosity like you see in Zacchaeus, 50%, half his wealth, or the widow, 100%. Or the Macedonians who gave out of their extreme poverty beyond what they really could afford. That is the kind of, you know, I don't want to water that down. That's the kind of radical, risk-taking generosity that we're called to. That's the standard, nothing less. The Apostle Paul calls it a grace because it is supernatural, God-initiated, and God-sustained. If you play it safe, if you play it safe, Jesus is teaching us in this parable, you've not been touched by grace. Grace. Risky generosity, not just generosity, is the mark of a person who's been supernaturally changed by God's grace. So Christians have to be motivated by something other than fear. And it was Martin Luther, I think, who described this really well. He says, when the Spirit comes, and I think I have this up here for you too. Um, See if you do, Josh. Maybe not. When the Spirit comes, He makes a pure, free, cheerful, glad, and loving heart. A heart which is simply gratuitously generous seeking no reward, fearing no punishment. Such a heart is generous for the sake of generosity alone and does everything with joy. That's something entirely different. And I don't have time, we're running out of time, and I don't have time to go into the particulars of that. But I just want to end by asking this question, Say, so how do you get a heart like that? I've been stopped by that by that characterization. That's the third point of the sermon this morning. You see this wicked servant, who his hostility was replaced by fear. He's wrong about the king. That's his problem. Look there in verse 21. He calls him severe. That word means hard or ungenerous, unkind, you, you know, exacting, harsh. He says you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow, which means if I earn money, you'll take it. If I lose it, you'll hold me responsible. There's no winning with you. And what stopped me is Jesus is saying this is what you think about me. You think that way about me. And it's why generosity is hard. Who, tell me, who would want to put their, uh, give their money away and put their life in the hands of someone who was like that? Nobody would. Now, in one sense, the servant's right, isn't he? There's much about the way the king deals with his rebellious subjects in this story that's severe. Verse 27, for example. Uh, As for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Okay? Can we agree? That's severe. You with me? It's a picture of judgment for those who come before God on that day outside of Christ. For them, judgment will be severe. But what what was it that we read in CBR this past week? Community Bible reading about the Word made flesh in John 1. Do you remember? We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, full of what? Grace and truth. So if you're not a Christian, his severity is the first thing. You have to deal with that. If, If you appear before Him on the judgment day with your head bloodied but unbowed, to him, then you will come to know his severity towards your sin. But Becoming a Christian starts there. It doesn't stop there. The Apostle Paul says in Romans, Behold, consider the severity and the kindness of God. Severity and kindness. So the servant was right about the king's severity, but he missed his kindness, and that's where he went wrong. So, let me finish with this. The difference, then, between a person who is just religious and a person who is genuinely a Christian is that the religious person sees God primarily as severe, and he's afraid, and so he plays it safe because he doesn't want to make a mistake, like the kids at the baseball field who get yelled at all the time by their dads and are just scared to death of ever doing anything wrong. But if you're a Christian, then you know that God is severe towards sin, of course, but he's also gracious and forgiving, and you put your trust in him, and that is saving faith, and saving faith is what leads to a new heart, pure, free, cheerful fearing no punishment, radically generous, and so forth. And what you see here is the rest of Luke 19, which we didn't print, but that, you know, in the Bible, obviously, this all goes together. It's the correction of this wicked servant's wrong opinion about the king. At the end of, of Luke 19, you have Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and he, and he comes to the temple, and he begins to yell at people and turn over tables, right, his severity. But what, but what you also read is just before that on the road, as they're cresting the hill coming into the city, he looks down He gets a glimpse of the city of Jerusalem, which his heart so desperately loves. And as the crowds are hailing him king, if you look at him, he's got tears in his eyes because he's weeping. So you see his mercy and his tenderness right alongside his severity. And ultimately, I would think we could say the cross. The cross is the ultimate display of God's severity and his mercy and kindness. And the gospel is this, because God dealt with Christ severely on the cross on account of our sins, we are now the recipients of his kingdom and generosity we were so wrong about him. We're so wrong about him. He's not a king who wrongly takes what he did not deposit to reap what he did not sow. On the cross, Jesus took God's severity against sin, which he was not responsible for. We are. And in return, we reap God's kindness and generosity, which we have not earned. Jesus is the king who disadvantages himself to our advantage. Now, can you imagine someone with real power, real money, real influence... With that kind of heart towards you, wouldn't you want your life in that person's hands? I mean, wouldn't that be a good thing, not a bad thing? That's the truth about the kind of king he is. So let me finish with this. At the end of the parable, the master takes the mina away from the wicked servant and gives it to the servant who had ten. And he says there, verse 26, I tell you that that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is a perplexing statement, the commentators say. What does it mean? It means, I think this, if you and I would heed Jesus' teaching, if we would begin to be risky in giving our stuff away for the sake of his kingdom, the result will be that we will end up with more. Not just on the day of judgment, more spiritual riches, more joy, more contentment more peace, more purpose than ever before. But if you play it safe, if we play it safe, if we let our fear get the best of us and we hold on tight to our stuff and to our money because we're so afraid of having to live without it, sure, you'll have all that you need. But the truth is that you'll lose more in the end than if you would have given it all away. You'll have money in the bank, but no adventure and no sense of purpose. See, you have to lose your life to find eternal life. You have to die before you can really begin to live, and you have to give away your riches in order to find true wealth. This is what Luke is teaching. And so let's pray for the grace to obey. Can we pray? So Father, now as we wrap this service up, as we sing these songs at the end here, as expressions of our faith and repentance, would you come and minister to us by your Holy Spirit? Make us willing to sing what we're going to sing here in these moments. Uh, teach us and, and admonish us and encourage us through the words of these songs and the lessons that they provide for us. And put in our lips uh, a, a spirit of worship and praise to you, Lord Jesus. Who, though you were with, rich, became poor for our sake so that in your poverty you might make us spiritually rich. That's the truth of the gospel. May, may that truth come into our hearts and dislodge all of our pride and dislodge all of our fear. And produce a radical generosity among us that would change a city. That's what we long to see you do in us. Now, uh, we are striving after his kingdom with all that we have. And the promise of this benediction is that as we do, if we will risk and if we will dream and if we will sacrifice and if we will give, uh, that we do that uh, in the context of his already making promises to us. At the beginning, before we make any of those decisions, those are the words of this benediction. So receive the benediction and then go uh, to be a blessing as he blesses you to turn that blessing into a blessing to the city. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.